Yes, my name is Brian. I'm going to be in Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, you don't need me to tell you this, uh, especially living in uh, Chicago, but a lot of us are tired. It's a lot of common experience this time of year. You run into a cousin, a coworker, uh, an in-law or someone, and, and, and in that conversation, it's not going to take long before someone says, I am tired. What are we tired of? We're tired of the grind. We're tired of the hustle. We're tired of the expectations. Uh, am I good enough? Will I be accepted? Will I be included? Am I posting the right stuff on social media? And then you check your mail and you find that someone has sent you a Christmas card. Who in the world has the time to go out in the forest <laughs> with their family and do a Christmas card? It's a lot for us to handle. I mean, we're glued to our smartphone, and as we consider what's going on in the nations of the world as we pick out our favorite cereal at the supermarket, well, I've got good news for you. I've got great news for you because the gospel message is joy for the weary. Jesus said very famously, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Oh, that sounds good. Rest. I want to talk to you today about rest, and I'm not excluded from this message because most of the time I'm trying to be the pastor, I'm trying to achieve, I'm trying to live up to expectations, my own expectations, the expectations of others. I've robbed myself of joy, I've robbed my family of my presence, my attention. And have you just ever had one of those days of like, if I disappoint one more person, you know, you're like a pop balloon, right? Uh, at a party, you know, uh, you know, there's nothing more, I think, that speaks to the metaphor of, of tiredness than, you know, a, a balloon at a party, it's full of joy, full of air, but then a pop balloon, I mean, it's just, you know, just a wet piece of rubber on the sidewalk. It's just, it's all gone out. What do you do when you're lifeless and feel exhausted? Well, I want to talk to you about rest out of Hebrews 4, 1 through 14. We'll have it on the screen, the great Screen in the sky. <laughs> Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you shall seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we have believed enter the rest that he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall never enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken on the seventh day in, his, in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. If you're curious, they're quoting Psalm 95 here. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive, that's interesting, to enter the rest, so that no one may fall 
by the same sort of disobedience, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who, who must give an account. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Father, we thank you uh, for this promise of rest, and I pray you teach us, Lord, how to find the rest that only you can give in your name. Amen. Uh, I don't need to tell you this, being from you guys being from Chicago, but many of us find ourselves sucked into the most workaholic culture in all of history. And, 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 I'm, and you know, sociologists talk about this all the time, and there's really two reasons that they give for it. Uh, the first one is a technological reason. Um, our work is more accessible to us. Uh, we, we can be anywhere and we can work. Uh, it's on our phone, so, so we, we, can, we can work at any time. The second thing is that the technology has, has caused the world to shrink. And so whatever you're, whoever you're selling products to, someone else, you know, in Bangladesh is selling the same thing, and it's 24-7. So technology has caused our work to be more domineering and dominant in our lives. So there's a technological reason. But there's also a cultural explanation. In traditional societies and in, in, in more Eastern cultures and, and perhaps in, in our country many, many, many years ago, you got your identity and value from your family. You got your identity and value from being a part of a community, even like some last names, like Johnson, son of John. Like you were identified by your family, the community you're a part of, being a citizen perhaps. So, so you, you were, your identity was because you were a father, because you were a mother, a brother, a sister, or uh, again, a citizen of some country. However, we live in a culture that is hyper, hyper individualistic. In fact, the most individualistic in all of history. And so on one hand, we have freed people from the assigned social roles so that you and I can be what we want to be. So that's typically celebrated in our culture, that we have freed people from social roles so they can be who they want to be. But the flip side of that coin is now your value and your identity is something that you must earn. Value and identity come through individual achievement. So you can't feel good about yourself just for being. You cannot feel good about yourself just for, you know, because you're, you're a citizen or because you're part of a family. You have to get out there and get it. Uh, you have to do something. You have to work. And, and this has affected even how we parent and how we do family. There was a time where you, your individual effort was a benefit to your family. And now we are using family to benefit the individual. Uh, and what I mean by that is that um, parenting has become a, a, a bit of a sport as well. And so we have lots of, of, of specialists to help our kids with, uh, you know, motor skills and, and education. And, and we want to keep people on the chart, you know, like you got to get in that right school uh, at a very early age. So you stay on track to get into the certain high school and the college and the job and, and all of this. And so our children's, even our children's development, uh, their grades, their awards, the brand name colleges, uh, the scramble for an advantage for our kids has 
certainly caused us to overparent, and overparenting is a lot like overworking, and it's a lot harder to opt out than you think. Uh, and so we use our children now to jockey for individual success. So everything is reversed. Again, uh, we used to use our individual effort to bless our family, and now we use our family, even our kids, for our own individual status. And so it's one of the reasons why we, again, why we are the most weariest society in history, the most overworked society in history. And even when we try to lay it down, even when we take a day off or go on a vacation, there's this little voice inside of us that's saying, you're getting behind. You're getting behind. You better pick up that phone. You better work. And so there's never been a society in history that's more restless, where there's a deep sense of weariness. Now, what is rest? Well, it's a layered word, and it's layered even in the text that I read for you. It means at least two things that I want to talk to you about. The first thing is what we all would, would identify with, that rest is, you know, it, it's physical rest, it's emotional rest, uh, and that is uh, personified with the promised land. So again, Hebrews 4 is quoting Psalm 95. If you read Psalm 95, uh, David's talking about the journey uh, that they had you know, from Egypt through the land, to the land of Canaan, to this place of promise. And so it says that this, this rest of the promised land, so verse 3 says, I declare it on my oath, my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And they're warning them, he's warning he, the, the people of God, the Israelites, about this, that they need to get to this place of rest, and if they don't do what he's saying, they're never going to get there. And this place of Canaan, this, this promised land, was a place of physical rest and social rest. The, the children of Israel, as you, Israel, as you may know, they were, they were slaves in Egypt, right? So they were brought out of Egypt. They were brought uh, out of being this place where they're being worked into the ground, and now they're able to be at a place where they could set limits on their work. And so God says to them in Deuteronomy 15, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out with a mighty hand. And an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So when you rest, when you have physical rest, when you put limits on your work, it's a declaration of the, of the freedom that you have in Christ. And anyone who overworks is a, is a slave. And so when you rest, when you put your work down, you're saying that I'm not a cog in a machine. I'm not a slave to materialism. I'm not a slave to the identity system of my society. I'm not a, a slave to the, the demands put on me. Rather, I am resting in my identity in God. I'm not a slave. So when you rest, when you truly rest, it is a revolutionary act. It is a rebellion against the rebellion. And so this first layer of rest is what we would all come to this place. We, wanna, we all want to get to this place where we could take a day off. We all want to get to this place where we have margin. And this is one layer of rest, but there's something deeper going on, much, much deeper. Because he even says in that, in the, in, I think it's in verse 7, he says, for if Joshua had given them the rest in the promised land, but there was the speaking of a greater day, something bigger going on than just getting physical rest or even social rest or, you know, social justice, you might even say. So in verse 3 through 4 uh, Hebrews, uh, of Hebrews 4, says, Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from his work. So we know that God created the world, and on the seventh day, 
he rested. But what does it mean that God rested, right? Because he, it's not, because God doesn't get tired. He's not like you and I. Like if we, you know, swing a hammer for a few minutes, we got to take a rest so that we can keep going. But God does not need physical rest, and God does not need emotional rest. He doesn't get physically weary. He doesn't get emotionally weary. So what does he mean when it says that God rested? When it says that God rested, what it means is that he was satisfied with what he was doing. So he looked at what he created, and he said it was good. It is finished. And he was able to lay down his work because he was pleased with what he was doing. He was satisfied with what he's doing. And that is what it means to truly rest, to truly lay, down, to lay something down. Just as you and I need, like for us to sleep well at night, we need deep sleep. We need REM sleep. We need to get to that place. We need something more than just external rest. We need an, 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 an inner rest and an internal rest that no amount of vacations could ever cure. No amount of margin could ever address the restlessness that you and I feel. So how do we get to this place of like being truly, authentically satisfied in what we do? Well, in the garden, in the Garden of Eden, we had this type of rest. We had this type of peace. And there was a moment, though, where we stopped trusting God. So we, we didn't trust God anymore. And, and, they, and Adam and Eve, they, they sinned. And, the, and I don't know if you remember this, but the very first thing that they did is they said they felt, they, were, they noticed that they were naked and they were ashamed. And so they immediately began to hide and they began to cover up their nakedness. So they experienced, and you and I experienced, a sense of not being right of not being acceptable, uh, a deep feeling of, of spiritual nakedness, and they had to hide from God, and they had to hide from each other. And unless you and I have this moment of experience of spiritual nakedness that, hey, at my core level, I'm not okay. At my core level, uh, I, need to, I feel like I have to prove myself, and that is evidence that I'm not okay. So the idea that you have to prove who you are, the idea that you have to achieve something is evidence that you don't feel right in who you are. And in, until you understand this, until you have this moment of spiritual nakedness, you won't understand your drivenness and you won't understand your restlessness. It has to be revealed to you. You have to see it. And I mean, the scapegoats are everywhere. So like everybody has a reason and we're piling up the reasons why we're not okay. I mean, there's, you know, everybody has a complex and society hasn't treated us right. And there's all kinds of explanations. In fact, we have more explanations for why the world isn't right than we've ever had. But none of them are working. In fact, if you pay attention to the condition of people's happiness and sense of, you know, like depression and things that indicate how we feel about ourselves. They are all going in the wrong direction. There's something deep inside of us that is wrong and we can't quite put our finger on it. We can't quite name it. It's why we 
Uh, It's why we work and work and work. It's why some of us are perfectionists. It's why some of us aspire, you know, like we just can't imagine not being really good looking or we can't imagine being really successful. We can't imagine being a really good parent. We can't imagine not achieving something or having something. It's because we have this sense inside of us that we're not who we're supposed to be. We don't have this sense of deep satisfaction in who we are. All of our work, all of our drivenness, all of our restlessness, they are, well, they're fig leaves. We're trying to cover up something deeper. But this is the promise in verse 10, 10, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. You see, you and I were made in the image of God. You and I are meant to experience the deep rest in satisfaction that God himself feels about what he does. That's genuinely possible. Uh, Because some might say, well, is there something wrong with work? Should I not work something? No, No, work is a good thing. In fact, to not work is probably, I mean, there's another ditch there. You know, Proverbs talks about the answer for it. The an- the, our work is not the problem. It's the reason for our work that's the problem. If it's self-justifying work. So we work to get a sense that I'm all right. Like, you know, I'm a, I'm a, good, I'm a, I'm, I'm a good person because I'm a good teacher. I'm a good person because I'm a good, uh, I, I make a lot of money. It's self-justifying and that's what will destroy you because you'll never, ever be satisfied. If your work to you or whatever it is, you're parenting If it's self-justifying, it will destroy you, and you'll never, ever be satisfied. You'll never be able to lay it down, ever. If the reason why you work is to justify who you are, you'll never be able to stop. You'll be a slave to it. If your parenting is the way that you justify yourself, you'll never be able to lay it down, and you'll be a slave to it. Even your good deeds could be that. Your unselfishness could actually be selfishness. Sometimes we do wrong but mean right. But i got to be honest with you. Most of the time we do right but we mean wrong. We do the right thing but we do it for self-justifying reasons. So that I can think of myself as a good person. Uh, Anybody here see Chariots of Fire? You guys know the movie? Nobody? Nobody knows the movie? Man, you guys need to watch more movies. And uh, here's the important thing about the illustration. It's about running, okay? That's, that's the main thing you need to know. Olympic running. So there's two guys in the movie, or two main guys, that, the runners, and one of them, Harold Abrams, he said this, in an hour's time, I will be out there again on the track. I will raise my eyes and look down the corridor four feet wide, with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? Here's another guy. Here's here's his response. I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. One guy runs to be sure of who he is. Another runs because he knows who he is. One is always weary even when he's resting. Another man is always resting even when he's working. Which one do you want to be? How do we get there? Well, okay, verse 12. 
For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed. We'll come back to that. To the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, there's a failure to you and I in the translation here. The ESV says, uses the word exposed, right? So that word exposed. The NIV, um, surprisingly, for you <laughs> translation geeks, um, gets a little bit closer when it says laid bare. But that even doesn't really speak to the true meaning of the word. The Greek word translated to exposed, used in verse 13, literally means to stretch the net back so you can cut it and kill it. That's a little different. What's going on there? And because, well, first of all, because verse 12 has the sword imagery, that's absolutely what the author had in mind. It was a word that was commonly used to describe how an animal was, uh, was sacrificed in the temple. That they laid them bare, that they exposed them, that they stretched their neck back so they can cut and kill it. That's how the word was used. So what's being said here? Well, it's uh, Francis Schaeffer, another old illustration. Sorry about that. He had this very famous, uh, he had, you may have heard this illustration before about a tape recorder. He says, imagine you had a tape recorder uh, tied, see, see how old it is, tape recorder? Uh, imagine you had a tape recorder tied around your neck. And all it ever recorded is every time you said you ought. So every time you said you ought or they ought or even I ought, just every time you used that phrase. In other words, every time you made a statement about the way humans should be, every time you made a statement that this is, this is the code for, or this is a standard for human behavior, not God's standard, not Buddha's standard, not Muhammad's standard, but your standard. So that's all it ever recorded, your standard for human behavior. Let's say you get to heaven on a judgment day. God's like, you know what? I'm in a good mood. Uh, by the way, he's always in a good mood. But um, like, just like Heather. And so we, uh, and he says, you know what? I'm not going to judge you by my standard. I'm just going to judge you by your standard. So let's get out that tape recorder and let's, let's play back every time you said human beings ought. And let's see how you do. And Francis Schaeffer goes on. It's like nobody would pass that test. Nobody does well there. Much less whatever God's standard is. And anyone with half a heart that looks at the injustice of the world hopes there's a God of justice, right? But if there is a God of justice, if there is a God who's going to uh, expel all evil from our world, and I hope, man, I really hope for that. I hope you do too. But if he's to do that, we are all going to be exposed. We are all going to be laid bare. We are all going to have our necks stretched back. If God is going to truly be a God of justice and get rid of evil, he's got to get rid of us. But then in verse 14, it says, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold to our confession. So verse 12 and 13 talk about being cut off, but verse 14 starts to talk about this merciful high priest 
And that's the answer. There's going to be a sacrifice, but it's not going to be you and I. It's going to be Jesus. In Isaiah, it says that he was cut off, that he was radically stripped naked, that Jesus on the cross experienced cosmic restlessness, that he was, that he was cut off from the eternal source of rest. When on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you cut me off? Why have you left me. Well, he was cut off so that we could be brought in and he was stripped naked so that we could be clothed with his righteousness. And when he died, he said, it is finished. What is finished? Our self-justifying work, our self-justifying work. In fact, in Isaiah, Isaiah 53 is this great chapter about the cross of Christ. It says that the father looked at Jesus and was satisfied. He was satisfied. He looked at the work of Jesus. And just like in the garden, he was satisfied. Where does deep satisfaction come from? Where does your rest come from? Our rest comes from the Lord. It comes from what he had done for us, trusting in, in his work, not in our work, but in his work on our behalf. Romans 18, or excuse me, Romans 8, 15 helps me in this. It says, for you, speaking of us, anyone who claims the name of Jesus, for you have not received a spirit of slavery. That sounds familiar. And in context, he's talking about religious duty, that you've not, you've not received a spirit of religious duty which causes you to fall back into fear. Fear of what? That you're not who you're supposed to be. That you're not good enough. That I'm not accepted. So you haven't received that from God, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So the spirit of religious duty pulls us back into this place of fear, makes it, makes it impossible to rest. So there's, 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 um, there's uh, this religious spirit that says to us that I'm not good enough. So when you hear that spirit that you're not good enough, that's not from God, that's from you. But what's the opposite of duty? I used to think delight right? It's two Ds, duty, delight. You know, you duty, you delight. But in this text, the opposite of religious duty is adoption. The opposite of religious duty is acceptance. The opposite of religious duty is that I've been accepted. And that's where rest comes from, the, that, that you have a reserved seat at the table, right? It's not like flying southwest. You know, you show up and you try to like scramble to get a good seat. You have a reserved seat, hopefully an exit row, right? And so <laughs> the Spirit of God whispers to you and I, you're accepted. So, so if you have this thought that I'm not who I'm supposed to be, that's not God, that's you. If you have a feeling that I am accepted, that's not you, that's God. In other words, there is nobody in the world that can tell you that you're accepted except God. If you try to get that from yourself, not going to work. You try to get that from someone else, not going to work. It's not enough that we encourage each other that you're enough. 
You need to hear that from God. God's the only voice that can tell you that you're accepted because our acceptance doesn't come from what we do. Our acceptance has comes from what he has done on our behalf. So the reason why the gospel of Jesus Christ is joy to the weary is because he's not come to show us the way. He has not come uh, to give us three steps to accomplish. He's not come to give us prayers to pray. The good news is that it is not performance-based. The good news isn't try harder. The good news isn't be better. The good news isn't quit smoking or show up to church a little bit more often. I'm glad that you stopped smoking. It has nothing to do with your acceptance. I'm glad that you're coming to church more often. It has nothing to do with your acceptance. You only get acceptance. You only get rest from trusting in Jesus' performance on your behalf. So what defines you more? Are you someone that's more focused on your performance, trying to be good, in, good enough? Or do you embody this idea of full acceptance, freedom, rest? It's what God has for us. Uh, in Genesis 1, there's this frame when he creates the world. He says that it was uh, it was evening and then it was morning and that was day one. It was evening and then it was morning and that was day two and so on and so on and so on. And so when God created uh, us, he created us to first rest and then work. So even Adam's first day, his first thing that Adam did on the seventh day was he rested. Many of us are working to rest. You know, I'm working for the weekend. You know, if I could get this done, then I can get to this place of rest. Just leave me alone so I can get this done so I can rest. God says, I'm going to bring you, to, I'm going to give you rest. And out of this place of rest, you'll work and you'll be truly satisfied. If you're a Christian, you've believed this once. The moment you became a Christian, you believed that you could no longer be the person that could justify you. You needed something outside of you to justify you. And Colossians 2 says a very helpful phrase, as you received him, so walk in him. And I like to think about it as like coming back to the fire. If you've, if you've been in like an old cabin out in the woods when you do your um, Christmas card for everybody. Uh, <laughs> You know, in those cabins, like, they, they're just heated by the fire. So in other words, like, you can go to other parts of the house, and you can, it's cold, but you got to get near the fire. And in this life, I think the gospel, the, the fire, the, the gospel is like that fire. I mean, one day we'll be like him, and, and heaven will be a place where it's heated throughout. But in this world, it's, you know, we, we have this, this gospel fire. And when, when it's happening, if you, if you wander away from it and, you're, and you find yourself in this place where you're cold, I'll say it this way, where you feel distant from God or you feel distant from acceptance, you feel distant from rest, the thing that you and I have to do is we have to go back and warm ourselves up by the fire, the fire of the gospel, the fire of the gospel. The gospel is that he has come to justify you, that we are not, he came, he says, I am not come to abolish the law, I have come to fulfill it for you. And that in, when he went to the cross, so 2 Corinthians 5 says that he who knew no sin, he became our sin. So on the cross, he was laid bare, had his neck struck back for you, 
for your sin. He paid the penalty for your sin. But that's not it. It says that he who knew no sin became our sin so that we could have his righteousness. So that we could have his good record. That we could have his acceptance. Right? So if you've been convicted of a, of a crime and you go to prison, you could get, let, you get pardoned from your sin, from, your, from what you had. And you could be freed from, but you still don't have, a, even though you got rid of your bad record, you still don't have a good one. Nobody's going to give you a job. Nobody's going to let you, know, you marry their daughter or whatever. But Jesus comes and doesn't just take away our bad record. He comes and gives us a good record. He gives us that thing that we can say, I am satisfied, that I am, at, I, am, I am all right. I am righteous before him, and I don't have anything to prove because the God of the universe has proven, uh, has proven me because of him. But I just want to pray for us. And, and the, the answer to this, because it's so... It's so funny. I know some of you are thinking, yeah, Brian, you know, I need to work on that acceptance. <laughs> Wrong. Wrong. Yeah, I got to be better at that. I got to accept. I got to. No, no, no. That's not how it works. You don't work on acceptance. You believe it. You receive it. You don't get better acceptance. You believe it. You warm yourself up by the fire. So I just want to pray for us and we're going to Worship Jesus some more. Jesus, we just thank you that you were laid bare. That you became our sacrifice for sin. The sense that we're wrong, you bore that. The sense that, we're not sa- that we, we have to prove ourselves, you proved ourselves. You gave us your righteousness. God, I just pray for every man, woman, and child, that they would feel your acceptance, that they would grab a chair and nestle up to the fire of your gospel, that on this day, 2,000 years ago, in a quiet night of Bethlehem, that you came and you lived the life that we should have lived, and you died the death that we should have died to prove us, and may we be those that receive your acceptance in Jesus' name.